Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Rick Haro in Sidekick. Maybe you don't want me to call you Sidekick, but the global editor of, uh, of Reuters, Reuters Digital, Reuters World, Dan Calaruso. Is Sidekick okay for the I'm proud to be the Sidekick here on Keeping Score. I don't get to be the right, Sidekick good. in my daily life. I'm good. always the boss. Now I get to be the Sidekick. I, it's so much less pressure. It's liberating. Thank you. Sidekick on this show, ruler of the free world everywhere else. We have a very interesting perspective because we're all about getting opinions from people who are um, opinion makers, thought makers, business makers in the industry, but have have decided to step away from the industry and and kind of reflect. Richard Petty was the former president and CEO of Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment for a number of years, from 1998 to present day or near present day, which means he brought Major League Soccer to Canada, he built the uh, arena uh, with the Maple Leafs playing, Toronto Maple Leafs, um, also involved with uh, the, uh, the Raptors. And he is a major player in all of international sports, but he has some very interesting perspective on the future trends of the sports. Candid, because he's no longer in the industry, an interview you really, really want to hear. Dan, what do you think? I, 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 you know, I got to listen in on the interview um, it was really interesting. First off, I've ne- I'd never heard of Richard Petty. So to hear uh, him speak, and he is the elder statesman of Canadian sports, right? He's, he's been involved right. at the, in the biggest markets in the country, several different sports. He's institutionalized the businesses around a bunch of them. And he has a great perspective. I think he talked a little bit about disruption to the current revenue models in professional sports, as only a guy who's not in the business anymore can candidly talk about disruption. So I think that makes it really interesting. I think it's a it's an MBA you know uh, seminar on sports business and how how to think about the future you have here. Absolutely, Richard Petty, incredible perspective. Not only the godfather of Canadian sports, but he has a lot to tell us about the future of the industry. First of all, six years away from your masterful masterful career in sports business. Reflect back on it and kind of give us a couple bits of wisdom or advice about the enduring principles of those years. Well, the interesting story with me was I was a big basketball junkie, couldn't play worth a lick. Piston fan, I lived outside of Detroit. And I wrote down in a journal when I was 20 that I wanted to run a basketball team. Wow. Uh, Did anybody see it at the time? No, other than my girlfriend who I wrote it in a journal. I still have the journal. And um, 29 years later, I did. And then I took over, um, um, we created Maple Leaf Sports when the Leafs bought us. And then I just, you know, you start adding to it. I had this dream for one team, and then I have a dream for building this totally integrated colossus with, you know, four sports teams, two broadcast divisions, numerous facilities. And, And it was just, you know, first of all, I got my ticket punch to get the job, and then I just kept really working at it to build the job. Vision and tenacity, obviously, the people with capital supported you, but only if you brought the vision and convinced people of that vision. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I say, if, if your board's not approving about 85% yeah. of what you recommend, they've got the wrong CEO. So we brought ideas. When I, when I went to them with soccer, like soccer had failed in this market ton, tons of times, but I talked them into it. Maple Leaf Square, I talked them into it. Television, it, it actually, we came up with an idea only 
probably man you did, we had a television channel devoted to a basketball team and another one to a hockey team. Quite unique at the time, but the board bought it and it all worked and we grow in, grew enterprise value six times. You forgot Air Canada Center. Yeah, well, that was, the first, that was the first thing on our map. <laughs> yeah, but the whole idea of the vertical integration, some had done it at Snyder and others, but mm -hmm. it wasn't the prevailing trend. What, what's the biggest selling point about that whole venture, looking back? Well, it was a lot of synergies. So we had one CFO for all of that and one CEO for all of that. We had our, our, our own hockey experts and basketball experts and soccer experts. Uh, we could get all those great synergies over all of the business side and cross-sell. So when I brought Toronto FC to town, yeah. I've got two uh, television channels to advertise them on. I've got a video board. I've got season ticket lists. I'm cross-selling like crazy. We already spent any money and sold out within a couple months. I know this is too broad, but this is perfect for this kind of conference. What are the biggest similarities and differences in the business broadly defined over from when you started to today? Well, when I started in 89, you know, I, I got the job at Skydome, and I remember the headhunter said, uh, why should we hire you? And I said, not because I know anything about facilities, yeah, okay. but I really, I, I spent 19 years in consumer products, Colgate, Pillsbury, yeah. uh, Green Giant, and in the brand disciplines, the market research disciplines, the sales and service stuff that I really thought could apply. And, and, and I convinced them to hire me on that basis. And that was 1989. Now you look forward, the leagues are so sophisticated. The best practices that, that Adam Silver makes sure gets cross-pollinated and Gary Bettman, it's, it's much more sophisticated now. I mean, we've heard everything from media today to uh, uh, analytics on the business side, so much more sophisticated. What's the greatest threat to the industry today? Hmm. Well, you know, short of a awful, horrific uh, terrorist attack, David yeah. Stern always said that could be a game changer sure. in a full full stadium. And, and so anyhow, we'll park yeah. that off to the side. Right. It's just the change, there's so many disruptors, hotels, uh, taxis, is there a disruptor waiting for this industry that we don't even know about? We're seeing it in the media side, yeah. but is there something else out there? I don't know. Let's talk about media for a second. Media today is a lot different than the media used to be. Now media is not TV, it's uh, court cutting, it's not court cutting. You write a contract today about media rights and the definitions are changed so totally. Where's it going? Well, I don't know. I think uh, what's really interesting is the NFL and the NBA player salaries are so dependent on these big new deals yeah. they've signed. When they come up for renewal mm -hmm. in seven years or so, what's going to happen? With, maybe over the top in these others, Twitters and the, and the Facebooks, but it will fill the void, but maybe they won't. And, and what will happen to all of the player salaries as individuals and collectively under a, a collective bargaining agreement, that could be a real disruptor in seven years. 1977, back when you were young and I was still ancient, we were talking about Andy Messersmith and free agency and mm -hmm. how that would kill baseball, and then we had salary increases and television rights. So I guess not being cynical, but just listening to it, what's different this time? Why, why are the rights fees not going to be there when they've been there for so long? Well, um, that could be, but you know, things yeah. have a, you know, I ran industries where I, I was, I would build a factory because sales were going like this and I used to think that, okay, instead of going up like this, they'll just even off. I found that when it's, when they slowed down, they stopped and they actually declined. Change can happen so quickly. Again, disruptors, there are always disruptors. I sang, I sold Tang flavor crystals. 
That was tank. a huge business. Yeah. You cannot find that product. Didn't we take Tang to the moon like we 50 did. years ago? We did. Right. Well, you did, the Americans. <laughs> I sold uh, Sanka coffee. Uh-huh. You know, market leaders don't exist today. Yeah. Things can happen in the world today. Yeah, well, and, and the bottom line is, uh, you know, those who succeed are those who prepare, but your message is we don't know what's going to happen. Well, so you're still going to gonna prepare. prepare. You're still learning. Yeah. You're still curious. Uh, and, and it's not going to just fall off a cliff. It, you're going to see it coming. And how do you respond to it? How are you proactive and progressive? Uh, are we appealing to the fans enough, the fan experience, the whole decouching stadium versus television, how do you get them off the couch? Uh, are, are you satisfied as the fan being the number one priority is going to be um, uh, served, well served years from now? Well, the arenas are constantly yeah. improving themselves. Sure. Sound, seating, amenities. In fact, you wonder, uh, you know, at Skydome, our, our, our video board was so big, you, you found yourself not watching the game, you found yourself watching the video board. Yeah. And, and I worry that pretty soon you've added so many amenities, you forget about the game. And that kind of concerns me. It's an entertainment evening as opposed to, you know, do you really care about the team? You need that fan avidity. It's, it's not entertainment avidity, it's fan avidity, so let's not lose that. And fan avidity is directly related to the quality of the team, directly related to the facility as well. The whole public-private partnership uh, issue, we just uh, came out of a spirited lunch debate on the issue. Uh, I was right and you were wrong. That is not <laughs> the case. But in the whole idea of public financing for facilities, I know position is that in the right circumstances it's okay, but it's not always okay for the right circumstances. So give us your perspective. Well, again, it depends on the league, it depends on the city, it depends on the sport, on the actual team. Um, as I said in, in the debate, things are changing in cities yeah. right now. Poverty, uh, uh, affordable housing, transit's wearing out, infrastructure's wearing out. There's lots of demands, and I, and I, I think, I, I believe, the owners are going to have to step up and pay more of their own, especially when so many of them are doing so well. Maybe not on the operating profit, but an enterprise value. I mean, if you believe Ford's, Forbes, uh, an NFL franchise is worth $2.5 billion today. On average. Yeah, on average. Right. And seven years ago, it was a billion. Yeah. Who has a 150% increase? In, and so when you're having that kind of a growth, and you, I think you mentioned it, if, if you know, someone gets a new stadium and then flips the team because they got the lift from the new stadium. There's something wrong with that. I think the owners have to step up with more money. All right, so basically you're known as the uh, Abe Lincoln of Canadian sports. How's that? <laughs> I just made that up. I just, but it finished, pretty I just good. finished a book on him. Uh, so, yeah, he was, he was pretty good. good. I, I, it's yeah. not, not a bad analogy. So so now we... we uh, there's no, nobody I have to emancipate, though. Here. No, no, not, no, not mm. now. You've already, you've already, your career has already been great. But if you have a choice, let's assume they're all winning or they're all going to win a game. If you had a choice of going to Blue Jays, Raptors, Leafs, Toronto FC, where would you go? Well, I wrote down that I wanted to run a basketball team. Yeah, when right. I ran all those teams, people would ask me the same question. Yeah. i said, it's like your children. You can't pick between yeah, them. Yeah, but now you're but not now running I'm, them anymore. It's basketball. Ah, okay. There's some, there's some truth. What is next for Richard Petty? Uh, I'm, I'm very involved uh, uh, kind of politically and in the community. Uh, we've got a great city here. I, I, my whole... Um, social media for a better Toronto. I, mm. I think, you know, we're supposed to be one of the most livable cities in the world. In many ways, we're not, and I think we can be. Well, I find it really appropriate that as Richard Petty describes his future, a halo. <laughs> <laughs> Son, thank you, my friend. <laughs> thank you. Really, nice really appreciate it. <laughs> Richard Petty served with Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment for 14 years, and in that time, you hear what kind of things he's done, and 
There are very few people who have done so many things from franchise development to arena building to corporate sponsorship securing, but top down, which is really important. Dan, what are some of the issues that struck you from his interview? Oh, I, I think it was so much even better than that. And that's you're absolutely right. But but I love the fact that he, he talked about how he used to work with Tang Flavor Crystals and how or Sanka Instant Coffee and how that just went away. That was something that had become kind of staples. You and I saw the commercials when we were kids. Um, and th- those were staples of kind of life back then. And you can't you, back then you couldn't imagine a time without them, and now they're gone. And he looked at the sports revenue deals right now and the way those TV deals are connected to salaries and players and just the overall structure of professional sports right now, and he said that can go away too. And you don't hear any many guys with, at that level with that kind of humility about things they've built. He's smart enough to realize that the massive TV revenues that have come in in the past decade and a half um, are not forever. Uh, and he talked about salaries being dependent on those deals. And I, I would put the question to you because we've talked a lot about this in the past, and you, you seem to have an a increasingly strong perspective on it. How do you see the social platforms, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, Google, filling the void uh, that might be there if the TV channels find themselves in trouble in six, seven, five years when these contracts are up with the leagues? One is appearance and one is reality. On the appearance perspective, there is definitely an idea that the traditional networks, the ESPN through ABC and Fox and NBC and CBS, have come almost to a crossroads where their chairmen and presidents say, look, enough is enough, the rights fees are too high, and people may be starting to believe that. The reality is that in their narrow world, it gives us the ability to say, well, let's add the inventory, Facebook, Snapchat, Google, Uh, all of these companies, Amazon, and we're going to test it out. The NFL did, as we know, the $10 million Amazon deal. Who knows what the results were? We've got until the end of the traditional contract cycle to figure out whether it would really work or not work. But the bottom line of all of this is that you have a situation where the appearance of that hole is filled up now, more importantly, with the ability of these companies not only to come in offensively, but defensively serve as joint venture partners for the big four. Either way, the net, 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 net is it'll increase the rights fees, potentially more money for players, more money for stadiums, more money for the industry. Well, or let's flip it on its head. If you look at what happened in the world of advertising, traditional advertising, um, the great lesson from Ken Oletta's book about Google and um, the Google guys telling Mel Carmazin, oh, we can measure exactly how many advertisers uh, how many readers are coming to your advertisers. And he was like, no, no, we don't want that. Uh, don't mess with the magic. And the idea that the social platforms have the ability to measure audience in a far more accurate, real-time, and determined way than linear media properties, uh, maybe the audience isn't what everybody thinks it is. And maybe there's not the value proposition. That's, to me, the, that's, to me, the wild card in this. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that gets measured, how it gets accounted for on a newer landscape, you know, on a changing landscape. Yeah, and the other piece of this, too, is that that measurement is the key to all of this. I'm at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and 10,000 people are here, and they're all struggling to get the next step of enlightenment in this industry. And the first thing everybody says is whether it's an app or whether it's companies that are trying to drive this, you got to be able to measure 
because all of the rating decline stuff's got to be taken with a grain of salt. Does that mean people are watching less traditional television linear? Or does it mean we have another situation here where we've got companies that need to measure how more people are watching iPhones, iPads, and that means more young people. That means better demographics. That means more corporate advertising appetite. And until you take that first step of measuring what the incremental value could be, you can't take the next step, which is how do you pay for some of this new technology and is it worth it? Right. I mean, that's that's the big determinant. How good is the audience? The more is the more you know about the audience, better or worse. <laughs> that's unfortunately, I think that's what it comes down to. Uh, but these days we're leaning toward more. And you being in Vegas right now, uh, you're leaning toward more because, you know, that's what technology companies, that's the promise of the technology. Uh, but I'd get to something else as well about the live experience around sports. You know, he talked about the difference between entertainment avidity and fan avidity. And the people don't, he's worried that people will come to games and be more interested in other ancillary stuff than the actual games. And that has a kind of eroding effect on sports. As someone who sat, stood outside a GQ pop-up barbershop in the Barclays Center uh, during a Nets-Bullets game about four years ago. I guess it's Nets-Wizards now, I'm sorry. Um, Nets-Wizards game about four years ago. Uh, I'll tell you, I was distracted by it and wondering if I wanted to get a haircut at a basketball game and if that was some kind of abomination in the eyes of the sports gods. Uh, what's your take on fan avidity and the entire experience? You being a Florida guy, you might have some thoughts about it from the Marlins experiment. What's, what's your feeling on it? Well, I think, I think the, the bottom line of all of this is there has to be some opportunity to generate some increased traffic in the industry by doing everything you possibly can. And so at the end of the day, it is a situation where, well, some people may want to go to the game because they like the team. Everybody can't win. Every team's not very good. And interactive social media is another example to measure and to increase fan avidity. Esports is big. We talked about that before. Right, but right. that's another way of getting people interested in the broad genre of sports. And when people talk about whether esports is a sport or not, they're missing the point. It's not relevant relevance is how do you use these sports as a vehicle to generate more fan avidity as you would call it or fan interest and the interest as we've seen from bowl games it's not how many people are watching but how many people are watching that are really intense about this stuff who right. can buy stuff right. who will come back and watch again who can view who can go to games who can get their affinity cards and use them so that's the nature of the game as it's changing and that's what Richard Petty years ago staked out. And that's why, even though he was at Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment for 14 years and has stepped away from the business years ago, he is still an incredibly compelling force and lessons learned for all of us as we move forward on Keeping Score. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. The producer, Alex Cohn. Associate producers, Freddie Joyner and Ryan Warner. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek. Tanner Simpkins and Ronnie Sokatch, and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso. I'm Rick Haro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.